1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash There are so many examples now of countries whose currencies have failed where the population intuitively gets the idea of having an asset that's not backed by nothing or at least not backed by scarcity the way Bitcoin is. That is, I think, the narrative that we're gonna see evolve dramatically in the coming year as the institutions really push this idea of Bitcoin being a better gold. And uh, I'm pretty excited about that because that's going to create competition to this government-driven monopolistic idea that that's the only money that exists and it's just obviously not true. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW.
0: It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Crypto.com and Nexo.io and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Saturday, December 26th, and today on The Breakdown's end-of-year extravaganza, I am joined by Bill Barhit, the founder and CEO of Abra, a mobile crypto bank. Bill has some of the absolutely most interesting life experiences of anyone in this space and brings a ton of real-world perspective to his thinking about Bitcoin and the markets. This was a great conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it. Let's dive in. All right. Bill, welcome to The Breakdown. Uh, This is a long time coming. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited. All right. So let's start easy and as big as it gets. What is the most important economic story of 2020?
1: I think that the most important story is actually a kind of a tale of two narratives, right? On the one hand, we've got this now very clear tale of two economies because of COVID, where it's like digital versus everything else. And if you're not in a digital business, you are suffering. If you are in a physical business, if you're in retail, travel, anything related to either of those, you're clearly suffering. If you're in a digital business that was doing well before, your business might have started to accelerate. Uh, Certainly everything related to remote services, um, banking, uh, et cetera, et cetera, has, has all done well during, um, during COVID. The other part of this, this kind of tale of two stories is, is where we are in, in, the, in the debt cycle. And I think that this um, is something that people really aren't paying enough attention to. I think it's been exacerbated by COVID, but it was already happening. And I think we saw this in the, in the kind of rise of populism, which started really with Trump, uh, but also had its own kind of versions in other countries, and this kind of rise in populism allows people like him, like him or not, to basically create any insane narrative that, that, that he wants. And as long as it has a populist bent to it, someone is going to believe it. And so I think the fact that we're very late in the debt cycle, uh, as many smarter people have laid out um, than I, has really um, uh, accelerated this, this, this idea that, that populism is back and it's it starting to scare me. Uh, but I think those are the two uh, most important economic stories for me uh, in 2020.
0: Super interesting. You actually anticipated my next question, which was going to be, what is the most important economic story that people didn't pay enough attention to? And it sounds like the relationship of where we are in this long-term structural debt cycle to political realities was
1: kind of your answer to that. Absolutely. And I think, I think I'd break that down in, in two ways as it relates. I'll, I'll focus on the US though, because uh, it's more acute. Uh, the first is is clearly there's a failure in, in within U.S. cities right now. Whether it's SF, Seattle, Portland, San Jose, uh, we need some kind of either technological revolution in our cities, but something that starts to work for everyone. I think we need to rethink U.S. cities almost like city states with their own requirements and and try to keep them out of national politics, right? And and just rethink and look at what works. Success leads leaves clues, what's working in in other countries that have survived COVID, for example, and where COVID didn't necessarily expose all of the structural issues in the cities the way they did in the US. And I am really scared about what's happening right now as a parallel to the 1930s. I think that we're at a point where monetary and fiscal policy are probably unlikely to, to work at all within 20 years. In, in other words, they're just not going to address systemic imbalances, whether it's our debt uh, or, or other issues that you've probably talked about many times on the show that can either lead to hyperinflation, some type of default, some type of depression or some combination of the three. And if we don't start paying attention to the fact that this is looking more and more like the 1930s, the political implications of this are going to even be even worse than the economic implications of this.
0: I think it's super salient. I mean, it's definitely something that I think about all the time and talk about on the show is just the, you know, on the one hand, we try to look at what's happening on a macroeconomic level, uh, kind of regardless of politics, but you really have to include, like these decisions, these discussions are inherently political, whether we want them to be or not, you know, and it doesn't mean uh, they have to follow along party lines, but I do think that we need to be comfortable with discussing political implications as a part of them for sure. Um, So, next question is, what is an economic story? Is kind of the inverse. What's something that people paid more attention to than they should have this year? Maybe an overstated narrative.
1: Well, obviously, everybody in economics wanted to talk about the rally in stocks, uh, especially during the second half of the year. Uh, I think the fact that we printed $4 trillion on dead trees to generate the rally in order to prop up consumer spending... Uh, and line the pockets of the already wealthy was really the important story, and it really relates to the last question for me uh and and this is a a structural imbalance that I don't think that fiscal and monetary policy is going to be able to fix, but everybody has been focused on stocks and uh, you know and it's just um, it's very unfortunate that we're missing kind of the the forest or the trees i guess you, you might say.
0: I completely agree. This is also a very acute way of of putting it. Um, I I guess this is kind of along those lines. Do you think that this past year represented uh, a fundamental or paradigm shift or an acceleration of shifts already happening?
1: I think that it, it probably accelerated this acceptance that the digital world is the new world and there's no going back. And any business that isn't digital is becoming digital or is in some way dying and there's probably not much you can do to keep it from, from dying. Uh, I, I, don't know if, 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 if that's, um, you know, I don't related to your question. I don't know if that's like fundamental in terms of like a, a, a new world or paradigm shift, but it's clear that if, if, if your business isn't in some way digital right now, uh, you're suffering. and, and that all not, not only relates to business, but in most aspects of our life, whether it's how we, how we eat, how we learn, how we educate our kids, how we, how we work in terms of our home office and our home life. It, 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 it's changed how we think about cities. Uh, I, I live near San Francisco and I, I every day I'm talking and I'm not exaggerating. Literally every day I'm talking to someone who's leaving to go either to suburbs or a smaller city or to a place like Tahoe or something like that, because there's no point in staying in San Francisco. So I think that that acceptance, uh, at least for the near term, is, is crystal clear that it's not going to change anytime soon.
0: Yeah, as a 10-year resident and ultimately refugee of San Francisco, I definitely feel that. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Crypto.com. The Crypto Super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place and earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly on all purchases. Reserve yours in the Crypto.com app today. Many investors want to be a part of the next bull run Let's shift over into crypto for a few minutes, I guess. Um, And again, we'll start big. When all was said and done, what were the biggest crypto stories of the year?
1: The obvious crypto stories for me are uh, institutional interest in Bitcoin as an asset class. And and because of the idea that Bitcoin is becoming a, a digital gold for people that traditionally would use gold as a safe haven uh, in these type of cycles that we're in now. Uh, most are still buying gold, but many more are starting to look at Bitcoin uh, as potentially a, uh, a better returning asset class. And then, of course, there's the, the corporate treasury aspect of this, where we have companies that have put a piece of their treasury into, into Bitcoin. And I think that's going, that story is going to accelerate um, into next year as well. I think a lot of these kind of let's call them early adopters of this idea are probably considered crazy by a lot of other uh you know corporate treasury management types who don't really understand what's going on and why simply because they haven't paid attention. Uh, the second story for me uh, is the DeFi story and the fact that we we basically went from a standstill to effectively a really big market still nascent by by big you know, finance standards, but to a relatively big market within a few months. And I don't think there's any going back now. The genie's out of the bottle. And I think you're going to see a lot more uh, use cases for DeFi prop up over the next year. And I'm really excited about it. I think there's a long way to go. I think there's a lack of understanding of the regulatory landscape. I think the D in DeFi is misunderstood. uh, And that's going to lead to some regulatory pain. But I think the value propositions there are, are interesting enough that these things will be worked out and I'm pretty excited about it.
0: That's interesting. I was going to my one of my next questions was about defi and uh perception of significance of that as a as a part of the kind of larger crypto narrative.
1: Yeah, I think it's huge. I think the idea that you can replace decades old systems with systems that that in theory don't have an off switch or at least don't have a, a single com- a corporate off switch is very compelling. Uh, the fact that you, the, or the idea that you can have markets that are open 24/7, 365, because they're uh, completely decentralized, versus you know we just came out of a Thanksgiving holiday where basically nothing happened uh, that wasn't crypto for uh, for four and a half days, right? So, so the idea that the crypto markets were completely functioning and, and open and doing exactly what they needed to do during that time frame speaks volumes to uh, how those systems work versus how our uh, archaic, arcane, monolithic uh, financial systems of old work and how they're likely to be replaced. And uh, it can't come fast enough as as far as I'm concerned. And it just leads to more competition in ideas, in technology, in platforms. And that's good. It's, 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 it's only going to help in the long term.
0: So speaking of competition and advancement, what is an unheralded advance uh, in this space over the last year? Or underheralded, maybe is a better way to put it.
1: Underheralded. That's an interesting question. I think. Wow, I mean, everything gets covered so much now. I mean, it's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll say that the um, the public. I don't know if this is exactly the intent of your question, but I, I I think that there's a there's a a bubble that's formed around crypto. There used to be a bubble around Silicon Valley, and I guess there still is. But there's a separate bubble around the, the idea of being in the crypto space that you're either in or you're not in. And the way we talk about it from the inside as kind of a fait complete in terms of how it's going to evolve, how it's going to change everything, is so foreign to the people outside the bubble that when they, when they hear us talk about uh, you know, collapsing currencies, and, uh, you know, the, the dollar going away and via hyperinflation and other failed currencies, it just doesn't resonate, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying that it's not, that doesn't mean it's not true. I'm just saying that we've basically created this bubble of people that feel like they're in the know on the inside and this bubble of people who are, or, or I guess not bubble, but everyone else. And everyone else is way bigger <laughs> than the group that's in the bubble. And I don't know that that's healthy or even useful. Uh, unless, of course, your goal is to just make money. Uh, but if your goal is to basically is to change the world, then the bubble is not helpful. And and so at some point we have to figure out how to leverage this technology in a in a totally inclusive inclusive way. And I think that the stablecoin narrative is is one aspect of this that I find particularly interesting because I think that um, stablecoins were created out of a, a need for almost regulatory arbitrage for trading. But I think their future is, is much, much bigger than that in areas of lending and supply chain and money transfer that people aren't even talking about yet. Uh, and, and so I think that could be uh, the application of crypto that pierces the bubble uh, over the next couple of years, and, and time will tell.
0: You know I mean, once you start to see stable coins as a digital version of the euro dollar system, which you know dwarfs kind of the the system uh, above the uh, above the sea, you know, if this is an iceberg analogy, it's not hard to start to walk down that path. It also explains a lot why you see people like Christine Lagarde coming so aggressively at stable coins even as she's starting to tout a digital euro.
1: Well, yeah, although I, I, I saw that and I was a little surprised because that's a little bit of the the wag the dog nonsense because look, the, the fact that the petrodollar is done uh, and basically is dead men walking for the next couple of decades and then people will realize it and it'll be written about in the history books uh, is is going to happen regardless of whether there's a uh, central bank digital currency in any given country or whether stable coins become popular Uh, It doesn't change. There's there's nothing about stable coins that changes the government's ability to do uh, government driven stimulus or central banks uh, ability to do fiscal stimulus. Right. And so, in other words, any stupid thing that they could do before uh, stable coins, they can do after stable coins and they will. And so I I, I don't think that her comment matters in any way, (laughs) to be honest, uh, because they're going to do whatever they're going to do regardless. Um, the, The properties of stable coins are more or less the same as the properties of paper with the exception of the fact that there's no dead trees. In other words, I can still print as many as I want. And as long as I can do that, and they're not backed by anything, eventually you're going to hyperinflate your, your way into non-existence, which is where this is headed.
0: I guess actually related to that is, how big a deal do you think this rise in discussion
1: of central bank digital currencies are? I think it's useful because it... There's certain things that governments can do b- before we fail, right? Uh, in terms of of moving money around, uh, putting uh, dealing with uh, tax refunds and and, and stimulus uh, payments, uh, places, especially in developing markets where uh, paper money carries disease. I did a lot. I spent a lot of time in Haiti, uh, and uh, during the cholera ep- ep- epidemic, people really were afraid of of handling paper money because they didn't know what they were getting when they touched it. Uh, and, and so that's part of the narrative that we don't hear very much about paper money. Um, but there's a lot of applications of, of central bank digital currencies that make it useful for a few years, uh, but it doesn't change this idea that th- there's no savior <laughs> for, for uh, fiscal and, and monetary policy outside of, of moving away from these assets that are backed by nothing, but that doesn't address what you do with the problem you've created in the meantime. Uh, and, and so there's nothing that a central bank digital currency is going to do to fix any of that.
0: Let's talk about the biggest risk to Bitcoin in the years to come. And same question for crypto, because it, you know the answer might be different depending on how you choose to define your
1: terms. Yeah. I think there are a few risks that I see in the Bitcoin world. I think that there's broad acceptance that Bitcoin is a settlement network, at least at, at the core technology of Bitcoin and will not be useful for payments because it will not scale for that. And we will rely on layer two technologies like lightning, uh, which I'm very bullish on to scale, but, but those technologies have not scaled yet and we need them to. um, And, and so I'm hopeful, but I want to see that happen soon, soon being like in the next few years. And I, and and I, and I think Abra, my company will have a role to play in that and I hope it works. Uh, But I think there's uh, a tech risk there that, um, you know we haven't really dealt with yet because again the narrative right now is digital gold and that's perfectly fine i mean bitcoin is playing out kind of the the austrian economics rule book to the letter right it's it's supposed to be hoarded uh as a deflationary asset until its value is just too great to be hoarded anymore and that's what's happening so that's good i would say that the second issue that 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 concerns me is is i think you're going to start to see at some point there's going to be this this discussion of um, what is What are my rights as somebody holding a, a wallet on my own right nobody Nobody argues with the idea that an Abra or a coinbase or somebody that actually holds your your digital currency is some type of uh, regulated entity, but what are my rights as somebody who's actually holding my own bitcoin in a in a wallet on my own computer or on a piece of paper with a key on it? And all of a sudden, now from nowhere, we're hearing these stories that the government wants to uh, may want to force people to register their own Bitcoin wallets. Almost like you would have to register your drone, right? That your 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 toy drone. And this is a really scary uh, idea, to to put it mildly, right? Not only has the Supreme Court in the United States come out and made clear that you know personal ones and zeros are protected free speech. In other words, any software or digital files you're holding is protected free speech. Uh, but the you know the kind of dystopian and, and, and Orwellian path that you are going down, I mean, the, there is no going back from that once once you, you you start down that path. And I don't think it's going to happen. I think we have a Supreme Court now that's conservative enough where they're always going to err on the side of, of, of free speech at least for the next decade. But just the fact that we're going to be having that conversation is very worrisome because you have a lot of ignorant people who don't understand the technology who are going to be opining on this because that's what politicians do, uh, and that, that is disconcerting.
0: I mean, this is definitely a thing that is coming up more and more as a, def- or a, a kind of a central dividing line in, in terms of how people think this industry will adapt and adopt. Will it be totally co-opted by both big money and big power, or will it be able to retain this sort of freedom piece? And it, it sounds like you have both uh, some fear, but also some hopefulness on that front.
1: I, that is exactly right. I, I, I don't see uh, governments winning in terms of, of, of inadvertently creating a dystopian model out of Bitcoin um, be, because we have enough prior art in the law to prevent that from happening. But that will not prevent the conversations. And a lot of ignorant people can do a lot of damage in the meantime and also uh, create a lot of FUD with people who aren't as technolo- technologically savvy as we are to know. Uh, the difference between software is free speech, and 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 you know something that could be a terrorist tool, for example.
0: What's the most important Bitcoin or crypto narrative for the coming year?
1: Obviously, price is going to be one of them, uh, which is a little boring. But I, I do think we're headed towards a hundred thousand. I think it's the digital gold narrative. I, I think the other piece of this. As as the world starts to reopen, and I think that's probably the most important narrative, you know, transcending crypto is is, is the reopening of planet Earth in in 2021. But I think that you, there's going to be a, a renaissance of of retail interest in cryptocurrencies for lots of reasons, um, and this kind of fear of of what's happening with governments is going to be a part of it and i think that's going to create uh just a huge groundswell of global interest and a, a lot of this is going to be outside the us i think there's a lot of countries that understand this narrative way better than we do right we always use argentina as kind of one of the examples because they've gone through uh you know hyperinflation cycles so many times but there there are so many examples now of currencies uh countries whose currencies have failed where the population intuitively gets the idea of having an asset that's not backed by nothing, and and so um, or or at least not backed by by scarcity, the way Bitcoin is, and so so that is, I think, um, the narrative that we're going to see evolve dramatically in the coming year as as the institutions really push this idea of Bitcoin being a better a better gold, and uh, I'm pretty excited about that because that's going to create competition to this government-driven monopolistic idea that that's the only money that exists, and it's just obviously not true.
0: All right. Awesome answer. And last question, what's one prediction only you have, or at least it feels sometimes like only you have?
1: I think we are going to have lots of successful cryptocurrency projects over time. I think most will fail. I think most crypt- having lots of cryptocurrency projects is a good thing because the technology competition that we get as a result is necessary to propel the, the space forward. It's very difficult to modify Bitcoin now as an th- almost $300 billion asset class. You don't want to be effing with the code on a regular basis if you don't have to be, but we can create all these alternative currencies that test all of these new technologies Most may die, but a few of them may break through and end up solving really big problems for us. And I think that uh, we're going to see uh, lots of new and exciting projects that kind of transcend the Bitcoin and Ethereum narrative over the next 18 months.
0: Awesome, Bill. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, for hanging out today. Always great to chat and uh, can't wait to have you back on the show.
1: Anytime. Thanks, Nathaniel. I really appreciate it.